Well, good morning. Um, as Kevin told you, my name is Keith, uh, and I'm really glad to be here with you again this morning. And we're going to spend our time looking at this passage from uh, 1 Samuel, the beginning of, uh, of 1 Samuel. And just to contextualize a little bit, uh, 1 Samuel is set right at the end of the time of the judges. And so, uh, just kind of by way of overview, you have people in Egypt, right? And then God delivers them through Moses, and those folks wander around in the desert, and that's where we get the book of Numbers for 40 years. And then they cross into the promised land, led by uh, Moses' successor, Joshua. And so they go into the land, and they kind of clean house a little bit, and set up shop. And then Joshua dies, and then after Joshua dies, we go into this time of the judges, which if there's a low point in Israel's history, you could probably say it was during this time. 350 years. It wasn't just a a little season. Even like being in the wilderness, we think of that as a long time. This was 350 years, which makes our country seem young, of having no king, no constitution. They had the law of God for sure, but the folks were neglecting it. And really, they were neglecting it because they wanted a king like the other nations. They were rejecting Yahweh as their true king. And they, they were kind of holding out for uh, a human king. And so, which was, in a way, part of God's plan. Um, and, and we're going to see that in just a moment. But as we turn to this book of the Bible, which uh, introduces us, in a way, to Samuel who's born at the very end of this section that we just heard read, we see the last judge of Israel born. And, and that sets up the, the kingship, the monarchy of Israel, which is ultimately going to give us David, and then a covenant with David that promises one from David who's going to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. So let's pray as we go to God's word together. Lord, thank you for this time that we can be together and worship you. Lord, we do pray for your protection, um, particularly around this region, Lord, as we continue to experience floods and landslides and all that goes into that. We pray for, um, for us now as we come to your word. Lord, we ask that you would minister to each of us, that you would enable your word to germinate in our hearts and even to change the way that we think about you, um, sharpen the way that we think about you, transform us. This morning, in Christ's name we ask. Amen. One of the closing lines of Hannah's prayer is, she says, For not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall a man prevail. It seems like that's an easy thing for us to say or hear, but I don't know about you, for me, that's a really hard thing to map on to my actual attitude and behavior, particularly when things aren't going my way or when I'm facing a trial or a test that I can't, I can't seem to get my head around or I can't um, comprehend or if I'm going through some suffering or anguish. The first thing that I do is I try to use my might to prevail. It's the first thing I do. I'm going to power through this. Uh, I can make it through this. 
maybe I'll bring in one or two friends um, into the conversation, but mostly I need to figure this out. I need to get through this, and I can. That's what resonates in my own heart. That's the pride that's in my own heart, is that by might, I can prevail. I'm not saying that I never pray. I'm just saying oftentimes it's not the first thing I do. Right? The first thing I do is try to figure it out on my own. I even think I have this way of thinking that if I can get it partially figured out, if I can get a rough draft of this thing done and give it to God, He can edit it right, and get it back to me and, and help me refine it. But I need to at least bring something to Him by way of a plan. Or I need to show Him something by way of fortitude. I can't just crawl over to God and say, I got blown up. Can you help me? Um, I'm in anguish here. Don't forget me. Um, this was totally unexpected and I'm undone. I don't go there first. And as I pray through this passage and as we come to it this morning, what I believe God wants to get done partially through this passage isn't only to introduce us to Hannah, who's the mother of Samuel, who ends up anointing Saul and then anointing David, who becomes the king of Israel, who, who gives us essentially the line of Christ. That's important historically. But I hope as we look at this woman and what's remarkable about her, as we observe what stands out to us about her, what's so refreshing about her, I hope as we look at that, God helps me and helps you to close that gap between trusting in our own might and just going to God while we're still a mess. Just going to God and believing, as we all believe, He's powerful enough, but He's also right here, and he wants to hear from me immediately. So let's turn to this passage. And as the passage opens, it's a feast. There's one of these feasts that, that Israel is observing. There, there were a handful of these on the Jewish calendar that God set up um, on the Jewish calendar so that everyone would slow down, they would stop work, they would travel to a centralized place and they would offer sacrifices. These sacrifices in particular are called peace offerings. The, the thing that's cool about peace offerings is it's like a big cookout. So it's not just like a, an offering that you bring and it's like um, you're wringing out your soul and, and you're going to give this animal to, to merely cover your sins for a season. This is that plus... Some of the meat goes to the priest, and then a bunch of the meat comes back to your family, and you eat it together, oftentimes with the priest. And, the, and that's to signify that, that there's fellowship that's been restored between you and God. So this would be for us kind of like a 4th of July or Memorial Day where, where we're remembering something specific, and we're giving thanks for it, but we're also going to fire up the grill and have some friends over and, and celebrate something. So that's the context that, that we're seeing here, that this is one of those events that God had set up for his people to gather and to enjoy his presence and to reflect upon uh, something that had happened in Israel's history, remember it, give thanks to God, and, and eat food. So that's how this um, passage opens. We're going to see a few things this morning, though. One is we're going to see Hannah... Um, and, and we're going to see that these feasts, these annual feasts for her, entailed some difficulty. Um, because maybe her husband was somewhat wealthy, and 
and she didn't have to share space with this other wife who had a bunch of kids. Um, so there's, there are two wives here. One of them, Hannah, can't have children. The other one, Panina or Panina, whatever, she has tons of kids. And it seems like every year when they travel to this feast, they kind of do it camping style, right? So you have to travel a great distance, more than one day's journey. And so you're in close quarters. And Hannah's in close quarters with this other woman who has maybe a new kid every year, right? She just keeps cranking them out. And Hannah doesn't have any. And to make it worse, this other woman, she keeps rubbing Hannah's nose in it, right? Like, where are your kids? Oh, I guess, I guess we don't have to make too much bacon. Well, I guess they wouldn't be eating bacon. I guess we don't have to be making, uh, hopefully. Um, we don't have to make too much more oatmeal because it's just you, right? But, but in terms of my family, man, we go through the oatmeal like you wouldn't believe. So she's, um, every year it says, year after year, Hannah is being reminded in close quarters that she has nothing. And, and in her words, as we'll see later in the prayer, she feels forgotten by God. She has no children. Um, God had promised Israel when he forged the covenant through Moses that, that if they adhere to this covenant, then, then their, the wombs of the Israelite women would be open. And even the, the, the wombs of their, of their uh, livestock would be open. That was part of Yahweh's blessing and promise. And so there's the stigma, even more so than today, when there's infertility, there's a stigma of Yahweh has somehow found fault with me and has withheld this from me or just forgot me. He blessed all the women of Israel, but, but while he was doing that, somehow he, he overlooked me. And that's the essence of her prayer that we'll see later. So there's a feast, but for, for Hannah, there's pain. And returning to this feast every year represents pain. It's pain because um, she knows that she's in, in, infertile. This other woman is reminding her of that. And her own husband, God love him, he does what we all do as husbands. The first move that he makes is to, exp- is to give her some explanation. I'm going to just fix this real quick with a slogan, right? Um, I wish that I had learned that sooner in my marriage than I did. But when my wife is crying, she doesn't need me to just tell her how we can fix it. Right? She needs consolation. And, and so he makes the classic error and says, aren't I better to you than ten sons? And that's his answer when she's, when she's weeping. Uh, no, you're not. Um, you're nice to me. You give me every extra meat, you know, when it's time to pass out the meat um, after the sacrifice. But you're not better to me than, than ten sons. Can't you see that I'm hurting? So we see this pain, humanly speaking, has isolated Hannah. Pain, emotional anguish, long-standing physical weakness, deprivation of something basic, whatever the form of pain, for Hannah, for you, for me, whatever the form of pain, it always tends to isolate us from others, from ourselves, and even from God. So Hannah is crying out in verse 11, remember me and do not forget me. It's a prayer of someone who's feeling isolated. Remember me and do not forget me. Jesus from the cross who we have mentioned comes through this line that that Samuel is going to anoint. Jesus cries similarly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this 
pain and he's isolated. Jesus repeatedly tells us along with each of His disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. So, as we think about Hannah's pain, we we need to kind of identify with it. Not exactly, because her pain might be different than yours or mine. But at least to understand that this is a this is a human condition that we all experience. It was experienced by Hannah. It was experienced by our Lord Himself. He was perfected through suffering, we read in Hebrews. And He tells us and all of His disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And trouble will tend to isolate you. In your pride, trouble will tend to cause you to bow your back and get through it um, on your own steam. And so we're going to see now that not only is pain constant, and that it puts us at this crossroads. Um, It puts us at this crossroads that will either drive us farther away from God if we try to get through it on our own strength. That's what we've seen throughout the time of the judges. That's what we will see with King Saul. Um, But it can also drive people closer to God. And that's where we come to Hannah's prayer. Hannah immediately discusses her pain with Yahweh. That's the beautiful thing I think about. That's what stands out in this passage, among other things. But in terms of Hannah, she goes straight to God. So they have this sacrifice. Um, the, 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 the food gets handed out afterwards. And then they go to their, their, their place to eat. And they eat and drink. It doesn't seem like Hannah eats and drinks, though, if we keep reading. Um, because she eats later. After Eli blesses her, she goes home with a peaceful heart, and then she eats. And so it seems that she dismisses herself from this feast as soon as she can do so discreetly, and she goes beelining for the temple, and she's pouring out her soul to God. We, we read things like she's, she's praying out of her vexation. She's pay, praying out of her anguish and her deep anxiety. She knows, and she keeps using the word Yahweh, She's praying to Yahweh. So how can we not just understand what she prays and understand those facts about it, but begin hopefully to to take this as an invitation for us and, and hopefully again to see God close this gap for us. First of all, Yahweh, the one to whom she's praying immediately in the midst of anguish, which is totally appropriate, she's praying to Yahweh who who created everything. That's the first thing that we think of when we think of Yahweh. Is He's the one who created everything. We meet God as Yahweh at the burning bush. And then we see Yahweh on display as He leads Moses back to Egypt and one by one topples these Egyptian gods through these plagues. He's showing us symmetrically as He goes through these, these all-comers, right? So Yahweh is in the ring and then one at a time these Egyptian gods get in the ring with Him and Yahweh knocks them out. And he's showing us, I created everything. And not only did I create it, and I'm aloof from it, but I am immediately in the midst of it, bringing my control and reign immediately to your circumstances. Yahweh is not just all-powerful, but he's imminent. He's right here among us. Um, It's why we light candles in, in in an Anglican church. It's to remind us that God's presence is here among us all the time. Yahweh created everything, but He's right here in our midst. Hannah knew that. 
She knew that as I pray to Yahweh out of my anguish, He's the only one that can fix it. My husband, God love him, he's not going to fix it. Yahweh closed my womb and Yahweh can open my womb. I know he's powerful enough to do it. That's the first thing. That's probably easy for us to get. The second thing that's hard for us to get, that Hannah gets, is that Yahweh wants me to come to him and talk to him. Yahweh believes that, or Yahweh has set it up so that my faith looks like something. My faith looks like coming to him immediately while I'm in the midst of anxiety and anguish and vexation. He set it up that way, the, the way that the, the tabernacle is set up in the book of Numbers in the middle of the camp. Remember, so the, the tabernacle's right there in the middle and then all the tribes of Israel kind of stretch out from it like spokes. Yahweh is saying through that architecture of the way that he's setting up the camp that I'm in the middle of my people. Wherever you are, you can look toward the tabernacle and see my glory above it. I'm right in your midst. He sets it up with these feasts, like the one that we have here at the beginning. I'm not just here in the middle, but I'm inviting you to come regularly, to stop your work and to, and to remember something that I've done for you and feast. And, and the, 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 the priest is going to sacrifice your animal and give you back some of the meat and eat it with you. And he's going to hold up his hands in number six and bless you, that ironic blessing. You know, um, Yahweh be with you and, and His peace be with you and Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and that beautiful blessing in, in number six. With bloody hands, He's, he's going to hold up His hands and bless you and your family that way. She understands that Yahweh is not just all powerful, but she believes that He wants her to come and talk to Him um, that he's nearby and that he's interested. God will hear her. God wants to hear her. So here we have this, in a sense, it's, it's an important passage because it, it brings us the mother of Samuel who again is going to anoint David ultimately a little bit later in the book. So it's historically important but the, this beautiful piece that, that comes through in Hannah's example stirs us and, and invites us, I hope, into praying to God sooner. She does, she's not um, trying to find a collect, and I love Anglicanism, she's not trying to find a collect that matches what she needs to say. She's just pouring out her heart. She's not even using her voice. She's just, her mouth is moving. And, and we're going to get... David, and then we're going to get Jesus, and, and Jesus is going to be another priest who's going to go through the heavens, and, and through the torn veil, he invites us to come to the throne of grace and say everything, the text says, saying it all to him, and, and finding grace, and finding, uh, I'm sorry, finding mercy and finding grace in every time of need. Jesus is still inviting us to come all the more. And say it all to Him. To find mercy and to find grace. Jesus says, Come to Me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Not come to Me after you feel rested enough to talk and, and will compare notes. He says, Come to Me, all who are weary. You're flagging out. Come to Me. Come to Me. Directly. Jesus says, 
in another place, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and let the one who believes in Me drink. Just as the Scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Come to Me when you're thirsty. When you're desperate. When you're parched. Don't go get satisfied somewhere else. And then come to Me and compare notes. Come to Me when you're weary. Come to Me when you're thirsty. Let Me satisfy you. I need to hear that. I need to be reminded that it's not by might that I'm going to make it through. It's not by my own resources. It's not by my own cleverness or fortitude that I'm going to make it through my next dilemma or problem or tough patch when my shoulders are drooping. Jesus Himself calls us. Won't you just come to Me like Hannah did and pour out your soul. Come to Me when you're feeling anguish. Don't fix it some other way or patch it up some other way and then come to Me. Just come straight on. That's, that's the torn veil. That's the, the, the high priest who sits at the right hand of God and, and is the King of grace who's there to freely, based on His testimony on your behalf, there to freely give you all the mercy that you need. Because most of my problems, a lot of them at least, most of them are at least tinged by my own fault. Some of them are completely my own fault. So that's why I think Jesus says, but come, receive mercy, but also receive grace. Peter, another example, just to kind of move us through a couple of other lines here. Peter was, in a way, if you think about his life, he was kind of the champion of of getting it done by might, right? Even toward the end, he's whacking off somebody's ear um, in the garden. I mean, he's thinking, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to do it right. You're the, you're the king. We're going to take over. At the end, even after that 40-day Bible study um, with Jesus, after the, after the resurrection and before the ascension, right after that, as Jesus is about to go to heaven, one of the disciples says, is this the time that we come into our kingdom? I mean, they're tuned to think of this by way of power, by way of human might. Peter, though, as he ages and as he mellows and he writes his epistle, 1 Peter, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due time He will lift you up. And then do you remember what comes right after that that modifies the whole thing? How do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? How do we believe that in due time He'll lift us up? Casting your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, He will lift you up. How? Casting your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Being like Hannah. When you have cares, coming to God and laying them at His feet, believing that He cares for you. So here we have the birth of Samuel. We have the story of one woman in the midst of her pain going and praying. And and as she prays, God conveys a blessing to her through Eli. And she goes away peaceful, knowing that she's been heard. Not knowing that it's all going to work out the way that she wants. Just knowing that she's been heard. And that's enough to go and eat. And then, sure enough, she gets pregnant. And we get Samuel. And then we get David. 
And then we get Jesus. And here we are, being invited by Christ to come to Him immediately through that torn veil to the throne of grace and cast our cares on Him, knowing that He cares for us. My prayer for you and for me is that I will do that quicker. That I will do that sooner. That I will stop trying to get through one more day or ten more minutes or one more week. That I'll stop trying to get the answer myself so that I feel more able or more confident before God. But instead, I'll just come to Him the way He invites me. The way Hannah came. I'll come to Him while I'm still in anguish and say, Lord, don't forget me. And then listen. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. God, we do thank You for this story of Hannah. This shimmering example of faith. Thank You for preserving it here for us. Not just to introduce us to Samuel himself, but to show us what kind of stock he came from and to call us to a greater faith. A faith that looks like something. A faith that looks like speaking to you immediately and openly and honestly, knowing that you hear us and you care for us. In Christ's name, amen.